So as I said, school is literally just around the corner for parents. That happens most likely this week, depending on your school system. And so we and our family, we've been doing this for the last several years. We know what it's going to be like if we just go straight from summer vacation, summer break, immediately to waking up for school. We know how that's going to go. We have seen how that goes, and it's not pretty for anybody, myself, my wife, our kids. It doesn't work out well for anybody. So we've instituted this the last couple years of the week leading up to school, we start getting back to that school rhythm and that school routine. This started this last week. We did some fun summer things, but it's like, all right, we're a week out of school starting, so... We start having closer to our school bedtimes again, and we set alarms for the kids to wake up just a little bit earlier, and you would think I asked them to do the unthinkable because it's still light outside. It's still summer break. They look at us and they say these words. They say, mom and dad, it's still our summer break. We shouldn't have to go to bed yet, and you're making us, and then they say this, that's not fair. That's not fair. We took our kids school shopping because we had to get all the stuff, right? And my middle son, Cole, his backpack quite literally fell apart this last year. I was like, what did you do? That's a whole other thing, I guess. So we needed a new backpack. So we took all the kids and not everybody needed a new backpack, but Cole most certainly needed a backpack. So we let Cole pick out a brand new backpack. You know what the other two kids said when they saw Cole picking out a brand new backpack that he needed, but they didn't need? That's not fair. That's not fair. Speaking of them going to bed earlier for school, I talked last week that we're big on the Olympics, right? So they don't get to watch all the way through. But me and Becky, oh, we most certainly stay up to watch them. So they'll watch just a little bit, like a half hour of them, and then we make them go to bed so we hear that that's not fair. And then you'll hear it from the other room. Mom, Dad, are you still watching the Olympics? And we're like, yes, of course, as we shout from room to room. And they're like, that's not fair that you get to watch it and we can't. So I just go and I shut my door and I don't have to listen to it anymore. (laughs) That's not fair. Look at somebody next to you and just say, that's not fair. Tell somebody around you, say, that's not fair. Now look at them and say, you're right, that's not fair. (laughs) It's not fair. Every single one of the arguments that has been brought up in our home over the last seven days of something that's not fair, my response is, you're right. You're absolutely right. It doesn't seem very fair to you. And when we experience something that's not fair, we get mad. We get so upset. We get angry. We complain about it. We get mad. That's chapter four of Jonah in a nutshell. See, chapter one, we we see something that happens in all of our lives, and we've been saying it all series long, and again, if you've missed it, don't worry, I'll catch you up. We see ourselves in Jonah, because God calls Jonah to go do something very specific. He says, I want you to go and tell the people of Nineveh about me. Tell them what they're doing is wrong, and tell them to turn back to me. He calls them, but then Jonah runs quite literally the other direction. He doesn't want to have anything to do with it. God calls, Jonah runs, But if you've been here, what does God do? God chases. He chases after Jonah. 
And oftentimes when God chases after us like a heavenly loving father would, he follows us and chases after us and even brings a storm, whatever it takes to get our attention to bring us back to him. So God chases after Jonah, gives Jonah a second chance. And then we see Jonah actually takes God up on that second chance and obeys God. And we see last week that Nineveh, the entire city, the people of Nineveh, they got saved. They changed from their ways. We use the word repentant, repentant heart. They changed their ways, turned back to God. So it started with God calling and Jonah running. God chasing after Jonah. Jonah getting another chance. That's called grace. Jonah chose to obey God and use his second chance for the things of God. An entire people, an entire city was saved. And then Jonah gets mad about it. He says those words, my words, not exactly his, but basically he says, that's not, one more time, fair. fair. That's not fair. So I want us to look at Jonah chapter four, see exactly what Jonah's problem is. And as we read through this, I want you to pay attention to kind of three parts of the ending of the Jonah story. There's three parts in chapter four. The first one is we're going to identify the problem that Jonah has. What is not fair? What is his issue? Why is he mad? Why is he complaining? So there's going to be a problem that Jonah has. Then God is going to challenge that problem. Say, are you sure that's really a problem? Are you sure you want that to be a problem? He challenges Jonah's problem. And the last part at the very end and how the story ends, we see God's heart. God reveals his heart to Jonah as well as to us. So look for the problem that Jonah has. The challenge that God presents pushes back on Jonah's problem. And then see how God presents his heart to us. Here it is, Jonah chapter 4, starting in verse 1. This change of plans. Well, what's the change of plans? It's what happened in chapter 3. That the entire city of Nineveh changed their ways and God did not destroy them. God, in fact, saved them and rescued them. So that change of plans, it was supposed to be Nineveh destroyed. God changed his mind because they repented. God is a gracious God. And that change of plan... That greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. Verse 2, so he complained, because that's what we do when things aren't fair. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I tell you before I left home that you would do this, Lord? See, this is why I ran away to Tarshish. Now, this is fascinating. We're going to find out from Jonah, his own words, why he ran. Remember, God called, Jonah ran. Jonah's words, he explains, this is why I ran. This is why I want to do this in the first place, God. He says, this is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. How dare you, God, so gracious, so nice, so loving and so merciful. How dare you? <laughs> In fact, we read Psalm, um, Psalm 86 last week, and that's exactly what he is quoting here. Jonah quotes an Old Testament passage, Psalm 86, verse 5, quotes it to God saying, I know who you are. I know that you're full of love, full of grace, full of compassion, that you are slow to, angry, to get angry, and you are filled with this compassion that never ends. I know that about you, God, and that's why I'm so mad. Because what's the words again? That's not fair. It's kind of funny to be mad about that, isn't it? I mean, I've heard people, man, I meet with people, talk with people all the time. 
And I've heard a lot of people be mad at God for a lot of different things. This is a first. <laughs> he is just too loving. He's just too kind and too compassionate. He has way too much mercy for me to be able to handle. I'm so upset at God for that. And I can't help but complain at how great he is. That's what Jonah's doing, though. He recognizes. He knows God, knows how great he is, how merciful, how kind, how slow to anger he is. And that's what makes him so upset. Now, you might think that his problem originally was with Nineveh. Not so much. It's kind of a symptom. Jonah's real problem is with love. Why? Love's not fair, is it? Love is not fair. Throughout this entire passage that we just read, talking about how great God is. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. He goes on in verse 3. He says, just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. He says, this isn't fair. And it's in fact so unfair, I can't even stand to be alive anymore. He's that upset about it. But again, he's not so much upset with Nineveh as he is with God's love and God's grace and God's mercy and God's forgiveness. His problem, remember three parts, his problem is with love because love is not fair. Grace is not fair. Mercy is not fair. Forgiveness is not fair. God's love is not fair because what fair says is here's what you did, therefore here's what you deserve. That's fair. Here's what you did, so here's what you get. Nineveh, you are a horrible people. If you're here in week one, we talked a lot about the context of Nineveh. They were the, sitter, the, the, the city center as well as the capital for the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians were horrible people. Horrible people. In fact, they were called the appalling lords of torture. They did terrible things to so many people. They were the, the number one enemy of Israel at the time. Number one enemy of Israel. And what they did to Israel, what they did to the Jews. And you want to save them, God? That's not fair. They don't deserve this. They deserve something worse. They deserve to have happened to them what they did to us. Because what they did, here's what they get. But again, God is full of grace and second chances and yes, love is not fair. In Jesus' words, Jesus goes through what we now call the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Listen to how he talks about love and how unfair it is. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You've heard the law said, these are Jesus' words, you've heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. That seems fair. They're your enemies for a reason. They've done something to offend you. They've done something to hurt you or to harm you. So it makes sense that you would not have to love them. So you've heard the law say, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. Verse 46, if you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even the corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind to only your friends, how are you different from anyone else? What a question. If you are only kind, only loving, 
only gracious, only merciful to your friends, are you really any different? Are you any different at all? Love is not fair. And that's the problem that Jonah has with God. Because Nineveh isn't getting what they deserve. They're getting something they do not deserve. They're receiving love, grace, forgiveness, mercy, and a second chance. So there's Jonah's problem. Now let's see how God challenges his problem. So this was Jonah's little temper tantrum toddler rant of that's not fair. And then verse four, here's what God comes back and says. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? Man, what a good question. It's a little bit of a rhetorical question. In fact, we're going to see, see God ask this question twice. It comes off as a rhetorical question here, but by the second time he asks it to Jonah later on, Jonah's so fired up and fed up, he actually does answer. It's kind of funny. But there's a little sarcasm in this question. Jonah's upset because it's not fair, and God says, now hang on, Jonah. Do you really have any room to talk? Do you really have the right to be angry here? Jonah, 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 Jonah. The prophet who ran literally in the other direction from me, Jonah. Jonah that got on a boat and hid in the very bottom of the boat, Jonah. Jonah that I had to have a fish swallow you to get you back, Jonah. Are we really going to talk about second chances here and what's fair and unfair? Jonah, I would say you are more like Nineveh than you think. But that's all of us, isn't it? We're all like Jonah. In many ways, we're all like Nineveh. So here's what God's challenging Jonah with. This statement. If you know grace, give grace. If you know it, if you've experienced it, you cannot give something you do not have. You cannot give something you're not aware of. So you're off the hook if you know nothing of grace for now. You'll know by the end of today. If you know grace, give grace. We could say the same thing about love. If you know love, if you've been loved, if you've experienced love, then what do we do? We give love. You could say the exact same thing about forgiveness. If you've been forgiven, if you've experienced forgiveness, then what do we do? We forgive others. Jesus tells us that. If you receive mercy and have experienced mercy, then guess what we give? We give mercy. But what we tend to do is we tend to hold on to it. Not with everybody. Like we, we give grace and then God gives us grace back and then we give grace and then we give grace and then we're, I don't want to give grace to you. I'm going to skip you and I'm going to give grace to you and I'm going to give grace to you and, oh man, definitely not you. So I'm going to give grace to somebody else. And we have the thems that God don't ever ask me to give grace to them. I will give grace to anybody else. I can overlook a lot of different things, but God, there are some thems in my life that please do not ask me to give grace to them. A them for Jonah was Nineveh. We don't know this, but I would imagine Jonah would have said, God, I will preach your word to just about anybody. I will give grace to a lot of people, but just not Nineveh. Anybody but the people of Nineveh. Just not them. Anybody but them. I remember reading, I think it was part of the curriculum in high school at some point, reading through The Hiding Place by Corrie ten Boom, her story part of her story of being in a, con a Nazi concentration, concentration camp during World War II. She survived. Her sister did not. 
A few years later, she tells a story and actually wrote an article about it where she was back in Germany. After the war had ended a few years later, she went back into Germany and was doing teachings at different churches in Germany about the forgiveness of God. And in one of those churches, just a few years after the war had ended, she was in a church, she finished her talk on the forgiveness of God, and as people were leaving, one man stayed back and started walking towards her. She recognized the man, the man did not recognize her. She recognized this man as one of the guards that was in the concentration camp that she was at and her sister died. I want to read to you, because she will do it obviously a whole lot better than I ever could, I want to read to you her account of coming face to face with one of the guards. She says this, Now he was in front of me, hand thrusted out, a fine message, how good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. But since that time, I have become a Christian, and I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me, it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do, and still I stood I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You have to supply the feeling. And so, woodenly and mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder. It raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all of my heart. I cannot fathom looking face to face, as she did, with an enemy as great as what she had. But what she says is profound. Forgiveness is not an emotion. It is an act of the will that can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. So Jesus, help me because I cannot do this on my own. So when Jesus talks about loving your enemies, forgive others because Christ has forgiven you, that doesn't mean it's easy. That doesn't mean it just takes away the pain in the past. But it's putting your hand in somebody else's hand, because that's what Jesus did for you. Please don't make this mistake, and this is often where we get hung up. Oftentimes we think, I give grace, and then you give me grace. So then I give you grace, and then you give me grace. That's not how it works. It's God has given me grace, and so I give you grace. And then God gives me grace again, and I give grace again. And then God continues to give me grace, and so then I will continue to give grace. 
Me giving grace is not dependent on you giving grace. Me giving grace is only possible because I have received grace from God. That's what God is trying to help Jonah understand. If you know grace, give grace. And it has nothing to do with whether they deserve it. That's the definition of grace. But it also doesn't have anything to do if they will give it back to you or not. That's not up to us. Through Jesus Christ, God has given you and I grace. Just as he has given Jonah grace, just as he has given the people of Nineveh grace. And it's our choice on what we do with it. Do we just hold on to it? Or are we willing to give it as he so freely gave it to us? If you were to study through the book of 1 John, great stuff. And there's a pretty short book. Like, you could go through it this week. There's a lot in there on, on that, on the idea of loving others and the idea of giving grace. Let me just highlight a few, and you'll see a little bit of a progression here. The first one out of John, 1 John 3.16. Again, 1 John, not other John. Or you're like, that's not what John 3.16 says. Right, 1 John. They are different. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we ought to. So this is what we respond with. This is how we live afterwards. So we ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. In chapter 4, dear friends, since God loved us that much, well, we surely ought to love each other. You notice the words ought to? Yeah, that doesn't mean you feel like it. I mean, I do a lot of things that I ought to do that I don't feel like doing. That's okay. It's exactly what, what we read a second ago. The temperature of the heart might not be there. Oh, but it's an act of will to live it out. Lastly, chapter 4, verse 9, we love each other simply because he loved us, us first. He went first. He loved us, so then we love others. And regardless of how they treat us, we have love for him, so we continue to love others. If you know grace, give grace. And it's not based on the other person or the other party or the other group, the other person across the table from you. It has everything to do with recognizing what God has already done for you through Jesus. If you know grace, give grace. So that's how God challenges Jonah. Now he's going to teach him a little bit of a lesson. God's going to give Jonah an object lesson, my favorite part of the Jonah story because it's too funny. It's a very funny object lesson. But this is where we get the, the heart of God. So Jonah has a problem. It's not fair. God says, yeah, but love's not fair, and you're glad that I didn't give you what you deserve, so let's not go down that hole here. And then God gives him this object lesson. Here it is, verse 5. Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. Kind of funny that even though God had saved the city of Nineveh, Jonah still went out to the side of the city and said, maybe he'll change his mind again. Maybe, just maybe, we'll see destruction happen. Come on, end of the world, let me see what happens here. So he goes to the outside of the city, just hoping that God changes his mind yet again, and Jonah gets to see the destruction of Nineveh. But as we know, that's not going to happen. So verse 6, here's the object lesson. And then the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there. And as soon as it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun, look, this eased his discomfort. And Jonah was very grateful for the plant. Remember that. We're going to come back to it. Verse 7. But God also arranged for a worm 
And the next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. You'll notice Jonah's a little dramatic just in general, isn't he? I'm like, goodness gracious, it's just not worth living when you saved Nineveh. And now he had this plant grow up and oh, that was nice. And then it died. It's like, oh, this is, it doesn't get any worse than this. I'm just ready to die. Goodness gracious, take a chill pill. All right, verse nine. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you? Here's the second time that he says this question. Is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Like I said, it's kind of a rhetorical question, but he's so fired up. He answers, yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. You're getting a picture of what's happening here? Jonah's so mad at what God is doing for Nineveh, saving them, that he goes to the edge of the city, crosses his arms, and just hopes that God changes his mind and sends destruction upon the city and the people of Nineveh. And while he's sitting there, God arranges, which, side note, if you want to do a Bible study that has nothing to do with what I've been talking through, because I don't have a lot of time to go through all of it, look for the words arranged throughout the Jonah story. It's interesting. You'll see that. Chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. Anyway, I'll keep going. That's a good thing for you to look into this week. But he has this plant grow up. And it's so hot, this plant gave him shade. And so he felt comfort by having this plant. He's like, oh, this is so nice. I'm in so distress about seeing these people saved that now finally I'm at least in shade. But God also arranged for this worm to come and destroy the plant, and now he gets all bent out of shape again. And here's the point of the object lesson. Verse 10. Then the Lord said, You feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? And that's the end of the story of Jonah. Ends very abruptly, kind of oddly. God just lets that question hang out there because it reveals his heart. Let me help you kind of decipher that object lesson with the plant and the worm and all the things that are happening in this part. God's question is very telling. Jonah, you're more concerned about this plant than all the people in Nineveh all the people in Nineveh. In other words, God's helping Jonah and us by knowing the story is helping us see how quickly and easily our priorities can get out of whack. Jonah, you care so much about this plant. Like, you're ready to die because the plant died. And you're mad because I'm saving people? Over 120,000 people, not including animals? Like, you're going to be upset over the plant more than me saving these people. Now, it's not so much the plant, it's what Jonah got from the plant. Told you to remember it. We're going to go back and look. So Jonah was so thankful for what the plant gave him. He got comfort. He got shade. So ultimately, the lesson here is Jonah cared more about his own comfort than the salvation of other people. Now we're getting a little closer to home. Our comfort over the salvation of others. Now, maybe your comfort doesn't come from a plant like Jonah's, 
But we all have things in our life that we find comfort in and we are very grateful for, like Jonah's plant. I don't know what it is for you. I know what it is for me. I think through all the comforts that I have in life. And are there times where the comfort of life, the comfort that I've been given, outweighs the urgency to tell other people about Jesus? Let's be honest. Yes. And so God asks us the same question, I believe. Brian, are you really more concerned about your comfort than you are the people that don't know me? Here's the question I would ask you. Are you more concerned with what's most important? Are you most concerned with what is most important? Because so easily those priorities get out of whack. Or we get all bent out of shape over what somebody said or what somebody posted or what somebody didn't do or a comfort that you had but now is taken away. It's like the plant. And what's most important Truly, most important are people that don't know Jesus. In Scripture here, God calls those people living in spiritual darkness. That's how he describes it. He says, but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness. You might have a footnote in, in your Bible here. It actually gives, there's a phrase that goes with that to help us understand it. The phrase literally would say, people who don't know their right hand from their left. In other words, they don't know what's right and wrong. The people of Nineveh, as terrible as they were, as horrible of human beings as they were, they didn't know God. They didn't know any better. They didn't know they weren't supposed to torture people. I mean, I feel like that's kind of ingrained, but maybe not. I think of my kids, all the things that they know, not because it just comes out of them, but because Becky and I have to teach them. They don't know what's wrong until I say, hey, that was wrong. So let me just challenge us for a second. There's people in your life that don't know Jesus. Guess what? They are not going to act like Jesus. So don't be shocked when they don't act like Jesus, which means let's not respond in a way that expects them to act like Jesus. Are you following me? Now, does that mean we just like, oh, do whatever you want to do? No, of course not. That's truth and love. That's what Jonah did. He actually went and told them the truth. But if there's people in your life that don't know Jesus, don't have some expectation that they would know what Jesus looks like until you start having this conversation with them. And we do that with a lot of grace because grace has been given. We do that with a lot of love because love has been given. That's how Jesus treated us. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, dying for our sins, do you remember what he said? Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Why forgive them? Because they, that's right. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what's right and wrong, yet they're still living in spiritual darkness, and it's talking about us even. We don't know what we're doing. So the story of Jonah. God calls, Jonah runs. God chases after Jonah. Yes, with a storm, but it's the storm of a heavenly father doing everything he can to bring his child back. Then Jonah gets a second chance by the grace of God. And that second chance, Jonah makes the most of it, obeys God, and actually walks through the city. We're told that it takes him three days to walk through the entire city, and he tells them the truth. The people of Nineveh recognize the truth for what it is and change their ways. The word there is repentant. They were walking this way. They stopped, and they started turning back towards God. And that's not fair. And Jonah got mad. 
because it's not fair. Love's not fair and grace is not fair, but thank God it's not fair because I don't want to be treated the way that I deserve. Every single one of us can relate to Jonah. And on some level, we can relate to the people of Nineveh. We all need God's grace. Let me add one more part to the story of Jonah, just to let you chew on this. We won't talk about it a lot, but I want you to chew on it. God chose Jonah to go to the people of Nineveh. And we've talked a lot about how the people of Nineveh were Israel's enemy. It would have been a lot easier for God to have called somebody from Nineveh to tell the people of Nineveh. Yet God chose enemies. God chose enemies. I would imagine Jonah said, pick anybody else, just not me. Or I'll go tell anybody, just not them. When you choose to follow Jesus and he gives you that grace, do not be surprised when he asks you to go give that grace to an enemy. It's easy to do it to friends. It's easy to do it in this building. But he calls us to go to the people that need it the most, those living in spiritual darkness, and yes, those that you don't get along with, those that you might even say are my enemies. So just don't be surprised. When you feel God tugging your heart and you're saying, no, 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 anybody but them, God. <laughs> anybody but them. I'll go and do anything except to them. But once again, it's how Jesus treated us. In a moment, we're going to take communion together. If you receive communion on your way in, go ahead and grab that. Let me read a scripture for us before we take it. But communion is our opportunity to celebrate that grace that has been given to us. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for someone who is especially good. But God showed us his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. We haven't done anything to deserve this. Verse 9. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. That's what he did with the people of Nineveh. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies. And don't overlook that statement. While we were his enemies, he restored our friendship because of what Jesus did on the cross. He goes on, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son, Jesus. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. That's why we celebrate communion. We celebrate that new relationship where we are now friends with God, not because of anything we have done, but we are friends with God because of what Jesus did on the cross, the grace that he gave us that we did not deserve, the forgiveness and the mercy and the love that we do not earn and we do not deserve. That's why we celebrate communion. If you're a believer in Jesus, then you've accepted that grace. Now our life is a life lived by giving that grace out. It's how we love God and we love others. If you're not a believer yet, you begin by accepting that grace. It's not get your life back together first. It's not figure it all out first. It's you go to him first. So in our time of communion, the cracker 
represent, that represents Jesus' body that was broken for you and for me on the cross. The juice represents Jesus' blood that was poured out for us. His sacrifice on the cross takes our sins away, which allows us to have that relationship with God, that friendship relationship with God, once again, that we can never do on our own, but we rely solely on Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. Let me pray, and then we'll take communion. Jesus, thank you so much for what you have done. Thank you for your sacrifice on the cross that takes our sins away. Thank you for loving us in a way that is so unfair, for giving us grace that is so unfair, mercy that is so unfair, forgiveness that is so unfair, because it's not what we deserve. So thank you for not treating us as we deserve, but treating us as you desire to treat us, as sons and daughters of you. As we remember your sacrifice on the cross during communion, as we celebrate that relationship that we have because of you, our only response of that is of gratitude, that we are thankful that you do not treat us fairly. In Jesus' name, amen. In your own time, take a moment between you and your Lord, and let's be grateful for the love and the grace that he has given us.